We're now going to continue uh, with the uh, session on the big book, uh, chapter 5, how it works. Uh, Larry G. will be our first speaker. Morning, everybody. My name is Larry. I am an alcoholic. I also am a recovering adult child of an alcoholic and a recovering Irish Catholic. And I'm not sure which disease is the most difficult one to overcome. When Joe asked me to come back and gave me a topic, the fifth chapter, I said, you mean you want me to talk about the fifth step? And he said, no, I want you to talk about the fifth chapter. And wow, how it works, the whole enchilada. And how do you talk about something like that, something that has achieved almost the sacredness within Alcoholics Anonymous, and we read the beginning of it at the start of many of the meetings around the country, including all the ones that we have at home. And what do you talk about in the fifth chapter, which includes all of the steps? Of course, when you look at the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, only a small part of it is related directly to the steps themselves. Much of the rest of it talks about other things. So there's really a few things that I would like to look at. I'm not going to address the steps. I'm not going to quote the fifth chapter by memory, which I can do, because it's not appropriate here. There's too much else in the fifth chapter to talk about and to consider besides just the steps that we read. One of the keys to me in my own recovery came after I'd been completely sober and dry for a period of 13 months. And I went to a meeting of my home group at which the chairman talked about the 10th step. I can't remember hearing the 10th step discussed at a meeting prior to that. But I went home from the meeting and I was trying to think about the 10th step and all of a sudden it was like getting hit with a bolt of lightning. It said, Gibson, you stupid SOB, you never took the first and second steps. And I thought, that's absolutely impossible. Nobody could stay sober for 13 months without taking the first and second steps. But that kept going through my mind and kept going through my mind. And finally, I get up out of bed about 1.30 in the morning, and I got out the big book, and I got out the 12 by 12, and the little red book, and stools and bottles, and everything else that I had to read. And I started going through it, and sure enough, in the fifth chapter, I ran across something that opened up the entire program to me. It says, if you have decided you want what we have, 
and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you are ready to take certain steps. It's my opinion, and I don't speak as an expert on Alcoholics Anonymous any more than anybody else can, but it's my opinion that there are people who get into trouble trying to work the steps of this program because they jump into the steps before they've ever made this very, very important decision. I think this book was divinely inspired. I don't think it's a revelation in the sense that the Bible, perhaps the Gita, some of the other spiritual things have been uh, revelations. But I do feel it was divinely inspired, and I think that one thing follows another, just as surely as night follows day. And it says if you've decided you want what we have and are willing to go to any length to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps. To me, once you make this decision, you're committed to a way of life with God from which there is no turning back. My sobriety is a gift from God. Everything else I have in life is a bonus. A gift is a grace. Grace is a gift from God, an unmerited gift from God. And that's the way I look upon my sobriety today and upon all the other beautiful things that I've been given along the way. When I looked at that statement, if you've decided you want what we have, I didn't even know after 13 months what you had. And when I sat there that night and I tried to reflect on it, I realized that you had two things. First of all, you had sobriety and all the things that went along with sobriety. And secondly, you had an unshakable faith in a God of your own understanding that went beyond all belief. And I decided at that time that I wanted what you had. But like many of the other paradoxical parts of this program, there's a joker thrown into it it said you have to be willing to go at any length to get it. And I was unwilling or unable or incapable of going to any length or even understanding what any length meant. I was one of the people they talk about in the first paragraph of this fifth chapter, how it works, who is constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves. I cannot be honest when a lie will suffice by my own efforts. By the same token, if I'm able to let God take over, there's no way that I can be dishonest. But I was constitutionally incapable of being honest with myself, and I did not have enough honesty to be willing to go to any length. And that was when I first asked God, for the help that I needed, and he gave me enough honesty to be willing. From that day to this, no matter what's happened in my life, I have never had a thought or a compulsion to take a drink. As they tell us in the 10-step part of this program, the problem has been removed. It remains that way so long as you stay in a fit spiritual condition. I firmly believe that in order for me to be able to drink today, I would have to go to God and say, I want to break the contract I made with you many years ago. And I'm too chicken to do that, and I hope I stay too chicken. It's a spiritual program. A program of spirituality. In the fifth chapter, 
There are some 70 direct or inferential mentions of God. And so when it tells us in here how it works, I think what it's trying to tell us is that we have to find God. There's a part of it that I feel is extremely, extremely important. And I would like to read it. This is from the fifth chapter, a part of the fifth chapter that we ordinarily do not read. And it begins to get into talking about the reasons that we're not able to find a way of life with God. And it talks about our selfishness, self-centeredness. That, we think, is the root of our troubles. Driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self-seeking, and self-pity, we step on the toes of our fellows and they retaliate. Sometimes they hurt us, seemingly without provocation, but we invariably find that at some time in the past we've made decisions based on self which later placed us in a position to be hurt. So our troubles, we think, are basically of our own making. They arise out of ourselves. And the alcoholic is an extreme example of self-will run riot, though he usually doesn't think so. Above everything else, we alcoholics must be rid of this selfishness. We must or it kills us. God makes that possible. And there often seems no way of entirely getting rid of self without his aid. Many of us had moral and philosophically convictions, uh, philosophical convictions galore, but we could not live up to them even though we would have liked to. Neither could we reduce our self-centeredness much by wishing or trying on our own power. We had to have God's help. That is the how and the why of it. Ed Doherty was asking me this morning if I was going to tell why it works. My old sponsor used to tell me when I'd ask why, why, he said, if God wanted you to know why it works, he'd have written a chapter on why it works. This is how it works, you do it, and that's it. But for Ed out there, raise your hand, Ed. He's not even here to listen. <laughs> so this is the how and the why of it. First of all, we had to quit playing God. It didn't work. Next, we decided that hereafter in this drama of life, God was going to be our director. He is the principal. We are his agents. He is the father and we are his children. Most good ideas are simple, and this concept was a keystone of the new and triumphant arch through which we pass to freedom. And how important that freedom is. They talk about in the fifth step, returning home, we took this book down from its place on the shelf, opening it to these pages and carefully reviewing the first five principles because we were building an arch through which we would walk a free man at last. In the ninth step part of the book, we are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. Throughout the program, we talk about freedom. And what is this freedom? I was reading in Thomas Merton just this morning that 
the knowledge of good and evil, that the freedom we have does not give us the freedom to choose between good and evil, because if we have true freedom, we can only choose the good. I don't have a choice whether or not to drink today. I made that choice years ago when I made the decision I wanted what you people had and was willing to go at any length to get it. I made that choice. I don't have to make that choice again. God will keep me from having to go back to drink the same way He will keep me from anything else if I'm willing to ask Him and turn it over to Him for His own protection. That is the freedom that we're granted. We are granted the freedom that we can choose good. We may have the knowledge of good and evil. That was a gift that those of us who believe in a Judeo-Christian ethnic, at least, and I believe in most of the other major religions, that this knowledge of good and evil, the yin and the yang, we know what's right and we know what's wrong. And one of the things that we're looking for in this program of Alcoholics Anonymous is to free ourselves from the wrong so that we can go ahead and live in the right. When we sincerely took such a position, all sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer. Being all-powerful, he provided what we needed if we kept close to him and performed his work well. Established on such a footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. More and more we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. And so many of you, being in the healing profession, have much, much to contribute to life. We also have much to contribute to death and helping somebody into a peaceful and a happy transition is not all that bad of a thing either. As we felt new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind, as we discovered we could face life successfully, as we became conscious of His presence, we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, and the hereafter. We were reborn. Here were these people in 1938, 1939, when they're writing this book, talking about being reborn long before they ever heard of Jimmy Swigert or Baker or any of those other people. We were reborn. What does being reborn mean? It means nothing more than that we can give up our old way of life. And then they go in and they talk about the beautiful third step prayer where we ask God to relieve us of the bondage of self so that we can better do his will. And what a beautiful prayer that is. It's one that I incorporate every morning into my life. And I would recommend it to each one of you also. And then they go on and they begin to talk about the fourth step. Why do we take a fourth step? Why do we take a fifth step? And they give us the answer to that. That if we don't do these things, we might drink again, and for us to drink is to die. Even worse than the death, the physical death we have is the spiritual death that goes along with it. We're given a way out, a way out in which we can agree absolutely. 
As they tell us in the second chapter of this book, there is a solution. And part of it is taking its fourth step. I told the story down in Dallas, and I'm going to repeat it this morning because a man came up to me and said, as a result of what you said in Dallas, I went and I took my fourth step. And maybe this will help somebody in this room who's been sitting on the edge and hasn't taken his fourth step or done the fifth step, that maybe you'll get off your butt and go ahead and do it. It's a story that happened to me many years ago. And I had a call from a man. I'd been in the program long enough, I might say, but I've seen a number of people who have been sober for seven years, ten years, 13, 18, 23, 28, 31 years go back to drinking. And almost invariably these people die because they can't find the simplicity of a little child that makes it possible for them to come back to this beautiful program of recovery. And this man called me about two o'clock in the morning and said, I'm afraid that I'm going to drink or commit suicide. I asked him to put a cup, pot of coffee on and I went over. And he told me a story. He'd been sober at that time for 17 years. He was 47 years old. There weren't too many people came into the fellowship at 30 years of age in those days. And he told me a story that went all the way back into his childhood. Of something that he had not done, he had not talked about in his fourth and fifth step. And invariably find that these people who go back to drinking again either did not take a fourth or fifth step or else they had deliberately left something out when they did it. And this man told me a story that went back to when he was seven years of age. And he was a Catholic, and he was coming up to make his first Holy Communion in the Catholic faith. A very, very important step for most Catholic kids. And his mother, they had a big celebration connected with it. His mother gave him two dollars to get down and buy four chickens. That'll give you an idea of how long ago that was. And he went down, he took the two dollars, and he bought his mother a gift and went out and stole the four chickens and brought them home to his mother. And he knew he had to go to confession and tell the priest what he had done. And he knew that if he told the priest that he would stole the four chickens, even at seven years of age, he knew the priest would tell him that he had to make restitution for the chickens. And there was no way that he could do that. And so he went and he made a bad first confession and according to the theology of the Catholic Church that we grew up with in those years everything else he did in the rest of his life compounded that serious mortal sin that he had committed at that particular time and he had not talked about this in his fourth step and he had not talked about it in his fifth step and so after being sober for 17 years in this program he was afraid he was going to go out and drink again. And he talked about it to me that night. I gave him the absolution. <laughs> Actually, I sent him to a priest who was in the fellowship and everything was taken care of. And the man is continuously dry and sober today, some over 30 years of sobriety. And it's a beautiful thing. 
But it stresses how important it is that even the little things that we talk about, these little defects of character, the little things we left out, how important it is that we write these down, how important it is that we discuss them with somebody else. Most of the fifth chapter is about the fourth step. How do we go about it? What do we do with it? On page 65, they have the example in there with the four columns. I'm resentful at the cause affects my, and then they have in brackets. Perhaps the most important part of it, which is the part of us, what are these defects of character that we carry? What are these things that we have to talk about with ourselves? What are the things that we have to look at? Basically, from the structure of the human being, the way the human being has, involved, has evolved, up to and including being able to reach out toward God, which according to people like Scotty Peck and other people, Sri Ramana Aurobindo, the great yogi philosopher, who talks about the supermind of reaching out and upward to God, that the human being is going contrary to the forces of nature, which are constantly involuted and eventually will end up in a blob. But the development of the human being, and particularly the mind of the human being in reaching out to God, goes directly opposite to that. And we have some counterparts to this in our structural makeup, in the brain. We have, of course, the basic properties of protoplasm, which particularly the younger ones here in this room know much better than I do because I have a great forgetter and a lot of things don't have room to stay in there anymore. But as we developed up out of the use and we began to develop this beautiful brain that we have, the thing that enables us to reach outward and out beyond it, so long as we don't interfere with the function with drugs and booze, that we can reach out to God, to God of our understanding. And that starts a way back, way back in the hindbrain, what I call the old dinosaur brain that we see in all the primitive animals, back in a part that the neurologist would call the locus ceruleus. And as long as nobody asks me how to spell that, we're fine. We develop five basic instincts in ascending order of sophistication, starting from the most primitive one on up to the most recently developed. These are fear, anger, sex, herd, acquisition. Fear, we all understand what that is. These properties, these instincts, are things that are necessary for our survival as individuals and as a race. Things that we transmit on to others through our genetic makeup. And we all have them. Here we understand anger. We spend so much time talking about in this fifth chapter how it works. They call it a dubious luxury of normal people. But again, in the fifth chapter of the 12 by 12 book, it tells me that it's inconceivable that God is going to remove from anybody all of an instinct. 
And of course, in there he's talking about the instinct of sex. And in talking about sex, we're talking about much more than putting a penis in a vagina. We're talking about the whole realm of sexuality, the thing that makes humanness what humanness is, the femininity, the masculinity, the parts that each of us have, the right and the left side of the brain, if you will, if you want to look at it from that standpoint. But each of us have a creative or a feminine side, and each of us have a dogmatic or mathematical masculine side. Sometimes these cross over and get screwed up. And we're not able to understand how somebody can have a lifestyle. Perhaps it's different than ours. But we're given the opportunity through the development of our brain and through the development of our spirituality to accept this and to love the people, to gain the freedom so that we can. And the herd instinct, the instinct for getting together in groups, communities, families, and the acquisition instinct, the old territorial imperative of an animal goes out and leaves a spore in a tree in four corners of territory and says, this is mine. This is my organization. This is my AA. This is my group. These are my Broncos, as long as they don't play the Redskins. <laughs> this is my country, my state. This is my God. All of the emotions, all of the feelings, and all of the cognitive processes come from one or another combinations of these basic instincts as they spread on up, as well as do all of the defects of character. And so enlisting our defects of character, we can list over in that fourth column, fear, anger, sex, herd, acquisition. Where do these things affect me? How important is it that they affect me? And we go on through the list. We go on to the beautiful fourth step prayer that our friend at the end of the last section of the meeting came up and reminded us so often. When somebody is different from us, how do you love the unlovable? How do you reach out to the person who's different from you? How do you reach out to the person who has a different color of skin, a different religion, a different politics? I remember when I get into this program, I was so imbued in politics, and I saw the little card they said there are no politics organization or institution. I thought they had something like this for Democrats, too. <laughs> I sat around and I found out that it was an Irish Catholic disease. Most Irish Catholics are Democrats, so uh, we were probably outnumbered there too. But the fourth step prayer, I don't know how many people know that this even exists in here. When a person offends us, we said to ourselves, this is a sick man. How can I be helpful to him? God save me from being angry. Thy will be done. I had a horrible time with this. How do you pray for somebody you hate? How do you pray for somebody you don't like? 
Finally, at a meeting, the proverbial little guy who is always there when I need him spoke up at a meeting and said, why don't you just say, God bless the son of a bitch. (laughs) Try to hate somebody when you're laughing at them. (laughs) It's pretty hard to do. And that prayer says three things. First, it recognizes that there is a God. Secondly, it recognizes that he can do something that I can't do myself. And thirdly, it gives me the ability to accept that person exactly as he is and I don't have to make him a bigger one. And that's kind of neat too. So we have these things that are given to us. The things that we talk about in this fifth chapter, how it works. And what a beautiful chapter this is and what an opportunity It gives each one of us to begin to reach upward and outward out of ourselves and out to our fellow man. Moralistic? Perhaps it is. In some respects, at least, it is. We're going to have to take a look at that. Great story they tell about about morals, about this school teacher teaching sixth grade and she asked her student she said I'd like you to tell me a story of something that happened in your life something that has a moral to it a teaching story something of teaching value and little Susie raised her hand she said yes Susie said my mom and I were in the grocery store shopping and she had her basket and I had my basket And my mommy bought ten dozen eggs and she put them in her basket and her basket tipped over and all the eggs broke. And the teacher said, Hey, that's wonderful, Susie. It's a good story. What's the moral of that story? She said, You don't put all your eggs in one basket. She said, Very good, very good. And Jimmy raised his hand and said, Yes, Jimmy, what's your story? He said, Well, my dad was in Vietnam and he was in a foxhole. And he had a bottle of whiskey in the foxhole with him, and he had five rounds of ammunition, and he had a machete. And the Vietnamese walked in on him, and he was drinking his whiskey, and he put the bottle down, and he took the five rounds of ammunition, and he killed killed five Vietnamese. And he took his bottle back, and he was drinking some more, and the Vietnamese came in on him again, and he took out his machete, and he killed 95 of them. The teacher said, well, that's quite a story, Jimmy, but what in the world is the moral of that story? He said, you don't fuck with my old man when he's drinking. will say to me, I can't believe you told that story. (laughs) But she's been married to me long enough that um, she knows that I will. And uh, I want to share something else with you. 
few minutes that I have, something that happened to me in Texas at a meeting. And I was sitting in a meeting, and the people were going around in the meeting and talking about things, and I wanted to talk at that time about how much I was getting in touch with myself and my feelings and the feelings of love that I've had for Davy. And just before the chairman got to me, he said, we're going to stop this now and go on to do something else. And I heard my mother and I heard my father and I heard my teachers and I heard my coach and I heard everybody else say, what you have to say, Larry, is not worth hearing. And I was crushed. But I was able to do something with that. I was able to get really angry. And I was able to use my anger effectively and appropriately and not turn it outward against somebody else and hurt them with it or turn it inward against myself and hurt myself with it. I was able to take that and I was able to go to God and I was able to ask Him, what should I do with this? How shall I deal with it? And he gave me more opportunities to realize how much, how important Davy has been to me. During my sickness, she was my rock. And thank God that she was there. And thank God that the fellowship was there. The calls that I got from Dick and from John up in Minnesota, from the members of my own groups at home, the people who cared whether I lived or died, and cared how I was living and in the quality of life. And the opportunities that God gave me during the illness to see my own weakness and to realize how the acceptance of my weaknesses could make it possible for me to find the strength that he was willing to give me. The thing that's promised to me in this fifth chapter of this book to relieve me of the bondage of self humility and finding a bottom I had one time after my surgery that I couldn't use a bedpan and I couldn't do anything else and I didn't have a bowel movement for about seven days and they gave me two enemas and nothing happened and they gave me some suppositories and nothing happened and they were giving me all kind of bowel softeners and finally, about 5.30 one morning, I had the most wonderful coming out party that anybody was ever given. <laughs> I couldn't get out of the bed fast enough onto the high john. It was right next to it, and I went all over me, all over the bed, all over the floor. And I was standing there crying, and the nurse was there helping me, and I was trying to apologize to her. The way we alcoholics will do, we apologize for everything and feel sorry for nothing. <laughs> and she said, listen, buddy, I don't like this any more than you do. She said, if you could do this yourself, I wouldn't be anywhere close to you. She said, you can't and I can, so shut up and let me do my work. <laughs> Relieve me of the bondage of self. Get self out of the way. How can I do that? I'm given this opportunity. This program gives it to me. 
I'd like to sum it up in just a very, very few words. From that great Roman, E. Pluribus Bacchus. Nebibite et ad consortia ite. For those Greeks in the room, <laughs> means don't drink and go to meetings. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.